Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Welcome, everybody. Today, my guest is James Fodor, who is a PhD student in Decision, Risk and Financial Sciences program at the University of Melbourne. He completed graduate studies in physics and economics at the University of Melbourne and a master's degree in neuroscience at the Australian National University. He also worked as a research assistant um, in structural biology at Monash University. Outside of his research, James is interested in science, philosophy, and critical thinking. Thus, today, we'll be discussing the subject of his book, Unreasonable Faith, um, How William Lane Craig Overstates the Case for Christianity. Welcome, James. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks, David. Pleasure to be here. It's really nice to talk to a fellow Australian. Uh, You're living in Melbourne, is that correct? Still? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's where I was born. It's a um, oh, cool. it's a good part of the world. Yeah, uh, not the city part though. Like I didn't, I wasn't born in the city, but um, <laughs> well, yeah, not many people were. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, first question, and uh, this is uh, yeah, first question is, um, uh, what are we drinking today? <laughs> well, so I'm rather. We... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go, 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 go. I'm rather boring. I don't really drink much other than water, uh, but I do have my uh, vodka bottle here, which I use for <laughs> refills. So I might take some screws out of that now and then. And I thought, I thought that was such an interesting. You must know, as a neuroscience um, major, that you know you must know that uh, that um, water hydration is key to the brain, right? So that's 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 why the, the water is the key. So yeah, so I'm drinking water as well. This is the first time I've done water. This is cool. Um, so um, I was wondering if you could run us through uh, the Kalam and give us like the best faith interpretation of uh, William Lane Craig's Kalam cosmological argument, which is probably the most famous um, uh, argument for the existence of God, would you say? Or is there are there more famous ones? Uh, well, it's hard for me to say what is sort of famous in the general population. Uh, it's probably the most famous in the apologetic sphere these days. Mm-hmm. So is it, um, so, and your book is, I got this the other day and um, like it arrived the other day and I was like, this is so thick. I was hoping to be able to get through it, but it is like, <laughs> it is dense. And it's like, you've really put in the work. How long did it take you to to, to um, write this down? Like to, to formulate this argument? Uh, I mean, I think about a year spent actually writing. There was plenty of time spent before then uh, developing different ideas, particularly the resurrection. Uh, component that took a lot of research the kalam also took a lot of reading because craig's written a lot about the kalam and related issues and a lot of that writing you you think my book is long (laughs) some of those are much much longer and much i think harder to read so yeah i mean a year for the actual writing but overall project was several years i don't even know exactly how to put markers on that do you think that you're probably the most researched in william Lane? like you've watched the most william Lane craig out of anyone possibly in existence uh not in terms of watch because i haven't watched all of his debates i've watched many of them but there are some people who like he has follow you know particularly christian following right who watch like literally all of his debates um in terms of having read his apologetics i haven't read as much of his theology he's written a fair bit of theology but in terms of his apologetics um i probably read 
the large majority of that. There's a lot of repetition, so I haven't, again, literally read every bit. But it's, it's probably up there, yes. Um, and this is the first book that systematically addresses Craig's apologetic. So there are books that have addressed parts of it, but there's not been a book that addresses all of it. So in that sense, it's the most comprehensive. Mm. So I've never been hugely impressed with the Kalam cosmological argument myself. Um, my background, obviously, I had... Um, I used to be a fundamentalist Christian, and now I'm not. Um, however, um, I, I don't necessarily get the sense that it's a very strong argument. However, I'm also not a philosopher. So I was wondering if you could just lead us down what the Kalam says, uh, and then why maybe people are convinced of it, uh, and then we can go into why you're not convinced of it. Does that sound good? Yeah, sure. So the Kalam is an argument that attempts to establish uh, only that the universe has a cause. So this is something that Craig points out a lot during debates is that the argument, at least in the narrow version or the strict form, doesn't actually establish that God exists. What Craig usually then does is he sort of adds on uh, one or two extra premises to get to the existence of God. So I usually like to talk about what I call the extended Kalam, which is not a phrase that Craig uses. It's my own terminology. But I just like to include all the elements that actually get you to God, because that's really mm -hmm. why anyone cares about the argument. So if I talk about it in um, in that way, um, the argument has, um, well, three to four premises, depending on what you want to include. But the main ones are that the universe began to exist. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. And if the universe had a cause, that cause must be a personal being. Um, and so from those, Craig concludes that um, the universe was caused by a personal being, um, and he identifies that with God. Mm. Um, so that's essentially the argument. And in, de in defense of the first premise, that the universe began to exist, Craig appeals to two different lines of argument. He, he appeals to philosophical arguments, and he appeals to scientific arguments. We can talk about some of those um, uh, in a moment. In terms of the second premise that everything that begins to exist has a cause, he largely appeals to sort of the intuitive idea that, you know, things can't happen without a, a reason or a cause and you can't just have like universes popping into being and things like that. Um, he has less to say about that premise, but he appeals mostly to intuition there. And in terms of premise three about that, if the universe did have a cause, it must be a personal cause. Um, he has two lines of argument for that. One is basically that, well, it can't be material and it can't be an abstract object because abstract objects can't cause things. And um, it can't be material because then it would be part of the universe, but the universe can't cause itself. And so he says that the only thing left is a personal cause. So it's kind of by a process of elimination. Uh, he mm. has another argument as well, which relates to the alleged uh, unique powers of um, uh, libertarian agents. So like disembodied agents um, to cause things without themselves having a cause uh, of that action. Um, mm. So that's the general thrust of how Craig gets to the conclusion. Now, one of the reasons that fundamentally I don't think it's a good argument is because in order to defend all of those premises, he needs to invoke a whole bunch of extra assumptions, um, which become progressively more sort of complicated and intricate the more you dig down into it, which is what I do in my book, obviously. And um, I think that it's pretty much impossible for Craig to defend all of the positions that he wants to because there there are internal inconsistencies that I draw out in in my discussion between the defenses that he wants to give of one premise versus another premise. Part of those mm -hmm. relate to the philosophy of time, which maybe we can talk about uh, about a bit more um, that he needs to assume. 
I would uh, love to talk about that because uh, I I knew a little. That's the one area that I knew a little bit about because of a previous episode on deep drinks. I had someone come and oh. talk about their PhD, and they're they're doing a uh, Mark Granado. He's doing a PhD on kind of the arguments around um, time in the um, with um, A theory and B theory and like the history. Right, yeah, yeah. Like that super interesting. I didn't know anything about that until. We had the conversation, but um, Russell, I posted this on the Myth Vision podcast um, Facebook community page, and Russell Miles said, "A book wouldn't a paragraph and a half be way too much uh, to address the Kalam?" And normally, I would go, "Yeah," like I, I reject it straight away from the first. I reject the first premise myself. Um, but what I love about your book is there is the, you, it's so dense, and it's this. I haven't read the whole thing. I've been I've been watching your. Um, your series on your YouTube channel where you go through it systematically and yes. there's nowhere to hide in this thing. Like you really, <laughs> there really well, is that was the, to hide. that was the goal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's supposed um, to be a comprehensive discussion that. of all of the issues that he raises. Um, yeah. Yeah. And because that hadn't been done before and what you get doing that is that you draw out, um, you draw out issues that aren't clear if you just focus on one or two little points that Craig makes is that you, you you notice that he makes arguments that are inconsistent and he draws upon principles in one place but then contradicts them in another place and so you can't mm. sort of have them both ways that's what i think one of the major weaknesses of the kalam is is, is that it, it does actually have a lot it's quite complex now this is a reason why it's attracted a lot of philosophical interest is because it does have many different um avenues or implications like it relates to philosophy of time philosophy of causation quantum quantum mechanics um philosophy of like well philosophy of space and time like the the origins of the universe and it relates to philosophy of mind in terms of like intentional action and, and agency and things like that so that makes it philosophically rich and interesting to discuss but it makes it worse as an argument because the more sort of um pillars that your argument depends on the weaker it is because remember mm. this is a deductive argument or at least that's the way it's typically phrased so you knock out one pillar i guess pillar is not really the best analogy right because multiple pillars will support the same structure and you know the more pillars you have the better but it's actually the other way around in a deductive argument you only need to knock out one and the whole argument is, is defeated because you need all yeah. of the pillars to to uh for the deduction to follow yeah in terms I of guess... your earlier point about <clears throat> whether one paragraph is not enough i think see this is one area where i differ from a lot of atheists i mean you, you could say one word in a sense you could say one word is sufficient you could just say no right you could just disagree with the conclusion right but the question is yeah. what your objective is i mean psychologically one can not accept any claim that anyone gives you irrespective of what they say um yeah and if if your only objective is to express your disagreement then one word is sufficient if your objective is to engage with the reasons given and ideally to sort of um present in a sort of a systematic and and fair-minded way why you think that they've gone wrong and also potentially to persuade other people then i think that it does take uh quite a bit more than one paragraph to to discuss the kalam i don't think it does yeah. take a whole book though because the, the kalam is only one section of my book so i think it's my discussion of the kalam is about 100 pages now you know you could probably condense it a bit but um yeah i think it probably takes about a chapter at least to, to deal with the kalam what I what I'm kind of shocked by as well is there's not much fluff in this. Like you know how you like some books like they're <laughs> they're quite fluffy. This gets right to the point. It's very systematic. Um, yeah. So I mean, so when it comes to um, so you kind of open this book 
talking about time, right? Talking about the yeah. the um, A theory and B theory, or how you how it's phrased is tensed and tenseless. Um, yeah. Which one is more cringe, A theory or B theory? What's what? What are you? Are you a B theorist or an A theorist? Well, I find A theory and B theory, the labels is kind of cringe. That's why I don't use them in my book. Actually, originally I did because that's what Craig uses. He has, Craig has four books on the philosophy of time and each of them is very long and boring um, and very hard to read. So I've read most of three of them. I think one is more theological I didn't focus on. But anyway, I try to incorporate the discussion of those in, in that section of the chapter. And anyway, one is called the A theory of time. One is called the B theory of time. And the other one is, oh, the other two, one is about relativity and time. And then one is theology and time. Those aren't the titles, but that's what they're about. Anyway, so Craig uses A and B theory as labels. I find those very unhelpful because they're not in any way connected to the content of the theories. It's just labels that I can't even remember who came up with them initially. Tense and tense less. You know, tensed and tense less theories aren't great names, but at least they're slightly descriptive. So that's why I prefer those. I should emphasize that technically tensed and tense less aren't the same as A and B, but they're close enough so that I don't think that we need to make any distinction here. Now, personally, mm. I think that the tense less or the B theory of time is the correct one. And I think that essentially that is supported by, I think there's philosophical arguments, but I think the definitive evidence is scientific that the Special and especially the general theory of relativity, I think, essentially, if you interpret it realistically, um, like in terms of scientific realism, if you lean towards that, then I think that you should conclude that they support the uh, the tenseless or the uh, the B theory, uh, and that's a problem mm. for Craig because Craig, uh, as he said himself a number of times, uh, is an atheist, so he's a he's a what he calls a presentist. So that's a form of the tense theory of time. He thinks that only the present exists and he thinks that that's essential for the Kalam to succeed. So if you can show that presentism is wrong, then the Kalam's not even, doesn't even get a starting point. The reason this is relevant, by the way, is because if you recall, the first premise is the universe began to exist. And that yeah. word began is critical there because this is actually fascinating. I think I mentioned this in the book. Craig wrote his his initial work on this was his PhD thesis. It was uh, which he published. Um, I think it's just called the Kalam Cosmological Argument, um, and he doesn't discuss philosophy of time at all in that book. And Craig has said elsewhere, I think I cite this in my book, that he said that it was only after he published his thesis that someone brought to his attention the whole A versus B theory issue, right? The whole philosophy of time point. Um, and Craig says that he wasn't really familiar with this beforehand, and he so, sort of just intuitively assumed an A theory of uh, an A theory of time. So the way I interpret this, which I think is fair given what Craig has said, is that Craig wrote his Kalam cosmological argument and it got some attention in the philosophical space or apologetic space. And then he sort of realized that there was this gaping hole in it, which is that if you reject the A theory of time or reject presentism, then you can just sidestep both of his premises because they presuppose um, this particular view of time. So then he, what he did is he spent years going back and basically trying to substantiate uh, or, or defend his particular view of time. That's why he wrote these four books, right? And uh, but the, the issue is the issue the issue is this doesn't get discussed much in popular debates. There's hardly any debates where this even gets mentioned. I think maybe Sean Carroll it comes up briefly, but for the most part he's able to skirt around this because most people aren't aware of this. And even many philosophers who discuss the Kalam with him on this don't bring up this point about the theory of time. But I think it's actually critical, and that's why I start the book off with this because I think it's foundational to everything that comes afterwards. Yeah, that that's so. Yeah, the, to to me, um, I look at premise one and go, the universe began to exist. I'm like, well, I I don't even know if I can answer that question. Like, I'm you you've you've studied uh, physics, right? I I have I have no yep. idea 
you know, I think maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we have no idea what happened or if even if the word happened before the singularity is even a sensical term, like terminology, like for, in many ways, when it comes to the Big Bang theory and like the expansion of the early universe, we have where we've got theories and concepts, but we don't have like a definitive answer yet about like why things expanded from the singularity or or or, or uh, I guess the, the reasons reasons for that. So the first premise for me as a layman is just I don't know. Like I don't know if the universe began to exist. I don't know if it always did exist. You know, I don't I don't know if like before the singularity there was some there was an infinite regress of universes that expanded and collapsed. And so yeah, what are your thoughts on my layman's <laughs> rejection of that first premise? Yeah, well just linking it back to the discussion about philosophy of time, I think excuse me. I think there's a bigger problem for Craig, which is that unless you accept presentism, nothing begins to exist in the sense that Craig means it. Um so Craig seems to, well, not seems to, I mean, he discusses exactly what he means by, by begins to exist, but he means it in a kind of um, sense of literally things or, or perhaps intervals of time. He's not always clear about exactly what specifically, but things don't exist and then they come into being and that's the present and then they go out of existence again. Um, and, you know, like the next part of time or moment of time or interval of time comes into being. So there's a sort of succession of um realizations of different uh, parts of reality or like times in reality um the thing is if and that's what he means by begin to exist so that the universe um began to exist in a sort of absolute sense um and unless you accept presentism not only does the universe not begin to exist nothing begins to exist like that basically the um the tenseless theorist of time thinks that time is like space there's over here and there's over there but there's no absolute there's no absolute beginning just as there's no, no like absolute sense in which um one side of my room is like absolutely to the left of the other it's all well, to the left relative to some um uh, frame of reference right but it's mm. just one part is over here and one part is over there it's not like one part is more real than the other or something likewise it's earlier and later than times exist but no one of them is more real or less real than the other so according to this view the beginning of the universe is is just as real as the as as now right it's just it it exists sort of over there at a different uh part of time and that's so we don't experience it now because we exist at the, you know this part of time so nothing really begins to exist in the way that craig means it and so that that's a bigger problem even be, before you talk about the beginning of the universe itself and that's why the first part of the chapter is addr addresses what reasons does craig give uh for thinking that presentism is true and you know how do we evaluate those um and then, and then the next section is where I turn to the specific premises. Okay, let's just grant Craig his presentism now. What can we say about the universe? Does the universe begin to exist? Um, and I essentially agree with you that the best answer is we don't know. Um, but Craig wants to say that we do know, and he has a set of he does appeal to scientific results. But he says that the main reason. We, reasons by which we can know are philosophical arguments. And so those consist mainly of a series of thought experiments, which attempt to show that either an actual infinity cannot exist. So Hilbert's hotel is one of these. Maybe we could talk about that if you want. And then there's yeah. others that attempt to show that irrespective of whether actual infinities can exist, you can't have an infinite succession of events. So the past must terminate at some finite, like distance sort of before the present. Uh, and that would be the beginning of the universe. 
So it's got two lines of argument, which are basically built on thought experiments. Yeah, it's uh, the Hilbert's Hotel thing always gets me as well because um, I, I'm and I might be uh, philosophically lazy with this, but um, but my my perspective on Hilbert's Hotel and the the idea of infinity um, is is very much uh, a hands up in it, like like it. I, I don't think anyone can understand infinity. Like I think it's a like it's a it's not we can't rationally contain it within our brain other than to kind of describe it, but we can't actually like we can't actually as soon as we've gotten there when we think we've understood infinity, there's like we're, we're missing something, like where there's more to be found, if that makes sense. Um maybe I'm saying this uh have you heard about the 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 monkeys and the typewriter like thought experiment yeah so um <laughs> sorry um so sorry they just got a super chat brock said if you don't agree to play cod tonight he's turning off the internet enough okay thank you thank you tom that was very uh that was very encouraging so um so with the with the monkeys on the top part of thing i had like a heated debate with my family about this like they were convinced that it was impossible that it would never happen but not only is it impossible, but it's like, it's like, it, it's it's proven in the premise, right? Because the infinity kind of works it out. Like the like it it, it can't not happen. Like it's it's. Uh, but well, I think if you have infinite people... monkeys, right? And typing on yeah. infinite typewriters, and and Craig's well, going to say that's impossible. Really, not just physically impossible, but like metaphysically impossible. So in any possible universe, you, you can't have an actual infinity. That's what he says. Yeah, you see, that's maybe that's why my family didn't didn't accept that. <laughs> well, maybe because, I, I don't I don't know. Well, wouldn't hang on and and please excuse me as I just go off on random thoughts. Um, but it, wouldn't that also because one of the other arguments for the existence of God, which are quoted by the same apologist, is that like you think of like God and the thought of God is like a perfect being, and then so a perfect being would be even better than the thought of God, who's a perfect being. Therefore, God exists, right? Yeah, like so that sounds the, like the ontological argument. Yeah, but so, so, so Craig, William Lane Craig would have to reject that then, because an infinite ah, God. So it's God, not infinite. Yes. Well, yeah. so, so the thing is, most most objections you can think of uh, to the Kalam, Craig has already heard and has a response to. I like to think that I not I level a few novel ones, mostly that involve connecting areas that other people haven't connected before. But anyway, so Craig has responded to this particular objection. Now, whether you find his response convincing is another matter. Basically, what Craig says is that when he's talking about infinities being impossible, uh, metaphysically impossible, what he means is a quantitative infinity. So a denumerable set of discrete items. Um, so like moments in time, for example, or I guess monkeys on typewriters. Now, when Christians say that God is infinite, they don't mean that God has like infinite things inside him or an infinite is some infinite set or something. They mean this that he they mean it in the sense that he doesn't have any limits. He's unbounded or he's uh, yeah maximal in some sense. Now I don't actually think this works, right? Maybe that works in some ways, but there's there's one specific sense in which you can show that that doesn't work in my opinion, and that is God's knowledge. So for example, you could ask the question, how many prime numbers does God know? Seems like the answer has to be infinite, right? Because there can't be like a high. There's no highest prime number, and surely God knows all the prime numbers of which there are infinite. Yeah. And so you can say for for each prime number, there is a some kind of 
fact that God is aware of or, or knows that corresponds to, you know, that, that prime number. And it seems like there's an infinite number of those. So in order to get around that, Craig just kind of has to say, well, God doesn't have propositional knowledge. He just sort of knows things in a non-propositional way. It's not really clear what that can mean. I mean, he still knows an infinite number of facts, right? So yeah, the, the point I want to make with that little example is that it only took a few steps to get to the point where in order to defend his claim, Craig has to say that God's knowledge is non-propositional. And already I'm scratching my head wondering, how does that work? Like, what is a non-propositional knowledge? Do we even know what such a thing is like for, for a God to have? And and does it make sense for him to have non-propositional knowledge about things that seem to be discrete items like this prime number and that prime number? And the thing is that when you, when you um, work into the Kalam, you find that there's a whole host of things like that, that in order to get around an objection, Craig just has to make an assertion. And it's like, mm -hmm. okay, well, there's that. And then there's, okay, so God's knowledge has to be non-propositional. What else is there? Well, we've already got like the, the presentism as a theory of time. We'll see there's a host of other things that come up later. And when you put them all together, he needs all of these for the Kalam to work. Otherwise, one of these objections goes through. And, and, and that's why I think the Kalam is so weak is because it turns out you need so many things to defend. But the way Craig get around, gets around this is in any one debate or discussion, people usually only levy a few of these objections because there's just not enough time. And so he has responses and it sort of sounds reasonable, right? Or at least he's good at presenting himself. What you don't mm -hmm. realize, I think, is just how many of these, I think, um, at least dubious claims, or at least claims that are reasonable to doubt, how many of these claims he has to defend. And when you level them all up against each other, you realize, you know, this is really more of a house of cards, right? Like there's so many things yeah. you have to defend here. <laughs> it's it's almost have you have you counted how many like pre how many um like how many that he has to like uh kind I think of I might have said something by? about yeah, I think I might have, I mean it depends how you like individuate them, right? I think I discussed this in the conclusion of the chapter. I can't remember the exact number. It, it's at least yeah, so so there's at least there's the philosophy of time, then there's the he has to adopt a particular interpretation of relativity theory. He needs to make at least one or two assumptions about the nature of like God's mind and causation. Um, then there's, uh, there's some assumptions about like the nature of infinity that go in there. And then, oh yeah. Um, the impossibility of like, um, there being a, um, anything that comes, anything that's temporal, but, uh, comes from a non-temporal state. We can talk more about that. So there's that one. I think there's a couple. Of, I think it's at, at least like eight to ten major, relatively mm. independent assumptions for, from memory, um, and that span across a wide area of philosophy. And remember, this is only one argument for the existence of God. Um, it's yeah. not like that these assumptions undergird different arguments. They all undergird just one argument. And I, I contend that it's just not he because he needs all of these, and they're all I think questionable. To say that yeah. they're all probably true is just not really. Uh, I think very reasonable, or at least it's extremely reasonable for someone like me to identify these and say, look, on the basis of this, I just, I, I don't buy it. Right. <laughs> like, that's why I don't yeah. believe it. Um, I saw a tweet from our friend, uh, Captain Christianity. Um, when I say friend, uh, have you actually spoken to Cameron before? Cameron Batuzzi? Uh Yeah. Batuzzi. Uh No, I think he's, <laughs> I don't know if I should say this. I think his approach is to pretend that I don't exist um, because yeah, we've had some indirect <laughs> interactions, but not. I've never spoken with him. No, he's spoken with Nathan, who I've obviously done work with. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm the same. I've asked him to come on deep drinks a few times. Um, I don't think I have any amazing arguments or anything, but I think his his position is is definitely to only platform um, people who make the argument for Christianity look really good. 
Uh, he's tweeted at me a couple of times, like when I've said some um, stuff on Twitter about, um, I said, I said an all powerful God shouldn't need to rest on the seventh day. And then people got <laughs> angry at that. Um, but he said something that like bothered me, not bothered me, but he's so good at trolling people on Twitter. And one of the things he said was, um, it's like a meme about like, oh, there's no evidence for the existence of God. And then it had like a list of all these arguments of Kalam. Yeah, I think I've seen like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you just like, and I was like, and I was like, if only you'd come on to deep drinks to discuss these, I'd love to chat to you about any of these reasons to believe in God. And just a random aside, because it seems to me that that no apologist actually arrives at their belief system because of these arguments. They're like, they arrived there because they grew up Christian, they had they got off drugs as a Christian or a Muslim or whatever, they had some experience, and then they're like, uh-oh, Big Bang cosmology kind of demolishes the seven-day Adam and Eve account. Like, uh, you know, maybe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go find how I can fit this together, and then they go looking for the evidence post hoc. Um, but it's not fair for us to just sit here and talk about... Um, the ridiculousness of um, apologists. So I want to actually flip the script a little bit just for a random aside and just ask you, what is your worldview? Do you have a belief in God? Do you, where do you think we came from? What is the purpose of life? Do you have like a elevator pitch for what, where you kind of stand? Um, well, I'm actually working on this at the moment uh, in the form of a second book, um, which will discuss a, um, or outline a positive worldview for a form of naturalism. Yes, yeah, so I'm an atheist. Now, I don't think atheism is a worldview, although theists sometimes say that it is. Uh, to me, atheism is just yeah. the denial or rejection of the existence of God. Uh, mm -hmm. It itself right. is not a worldview. Naturalism, metaphysical naturalism, I think is a worldview, or at least a class of worldviews. So mm -hmm. when I say I'm a naturalist, what, uh, what I mean by that is that I don't believe in anything outside of the physical slash material world. Um, some people distinguish physical and material. I just use them pretty much the same. Um, so I believe that everything that exists is ultimately a product of the interaction of, I guess you could say, fundamental particles, electrons and quarks and, and that sort of thing interacting in various complicated ways. Now, that doesn't mean that, for example, there's no such thing as morality or minds or free will or, or meaning in life. It just means that these things can be ultimately reduced in terms of their uh, what their parts or what grounds them, this is a term philosophers like to like to make uh, like to talk about what what grounds these things is ultimately bottoms out in in physical uh, states of affairs and their interactions. Now, this is distinct from many worldviews, uh, theistic worldviews, for example, as well as um, other worldviews which postulate some sort of fundamental mind or spirit substance that undergirds reality, um, mm -hmm. or even even philosophies like here Hinduism, which not necessarily theistic, but think that there's some kind of, um, well, some kind of stuff that underpins reality that's maybe yeah. not a, a mind, but not sort of purely physical either. And, you know, karma and the uh, Brahman and other things like that. So, so I reject all, all sorts of um, worldviews that have those sorts of components. And I think my ultimate reason for that is I think that we can account for everything that we need to um, in the world, all the phenomena that we sort of experience. We can account for all of that, uh, quite well just in terms of grounding it in physical states of affairs and that's what i'm sort of working on in my new book about sort of showing how that works looking at phenomena that theists often use to say oh we need more than uh the mere physical like uh the mind or morality and things like that 
But because I don't think that you need to postulate anything extra, then I think, well, you know, it's not necessary. So just leave it out. Plus, I also think that these other worldviews entail a lot of difficulties accounting for um, these new uh, processes or, or substances that they introduce, which you yeah. can just avoid if you don't believe in them. Yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty much exactly on the same page as you uh, in regards to that. How do you account for something like consciousness, personally? Someone has studied neuroscience. Yeah, well, that's a that's often regarded as the most difficult thing for um, <laughs> solve it for me, James. Solve for it. Just tell me the to, answer. <laughs> to account for. Yeah, well, I mean, discussing that would does probably re require a book or at least a, a section of a book. <laughs> so I tend to think of so if by consciousness what we mean here uh, as what's sometimes called qualia. So this means a phenomenal state. So a state that it's something to be like. There's an experiential component of it. Like people often point to like the redness of, of uh, a rose or something like that, or it could be, you know, smells and sounds and other things like that. Something that it has an experiential quality to it that we think that minds have, but, you know, computers or trees presumably or rocks don't have, right? Um, so I follow an approach that's fairly popular in philosophy these days, but certainly not universal, called representationalism. And basically this says that uh, qualia are representational states. So the idea is that when we have a phenomenal experience, um, like that redness of the rose, what that is, is that's kind of a first person viewpoint or first person kind of way of experiencing um, the, what it is that that experience is representing. So from an external point of view, you might be able to track the activity in my brain and sort of correlate that to what I'm seeing. But to the third person observer, that's just going to look like certain physical correlations or I guess statistical correlations of physical states. It's not going to feel like anything. The idea of the representationalism is that there's kind of this, um, um, th there's kind of this um, disconnect between what you can, um, how do I explain this? What you can determine if you just look at a system from a third person point of view and what is experienced when you are that system. This mm -hmm. is how we resolve what's called the um, uh, the knowledge problem or the, the problem of the, the gap. Whereas, well, I, I could look in your brain and see the activity of the neurons, but I wouldn't experience anything as the person who's like, um, you know, detecting that activity. But, but the idea there is that in order to have that phenomenal experience, you need to essentially be the cognitive system that is forming a particular representation. So a third person observer isn't that system, right? There's some, there's some other system. They're a different brain. Then they're not your brain. So you you basically need to be that system in order to gain access to the what it is like. So mm -hmm. there's no ontological. Um, there's nothing ontologically new there. So there's no like fundamental new substance or stuff that produces consciousness or anything. It's just that we are limited beings, and so that we can't get access to what it is like to be a particular state just by describing it from an, a third person point of view. So. So there's a sort of a cognitive limitation there. And what consciousness ultimately is, is a certain type of representation. So consciousness has a function in that sense. It, it reduces a phenomenal state to a sort of functional state, a state that does some work by representing something in the world. Um, and it's just that we, we can't get access to what that's like unless we are actually that thing itself. It probably isn't a very satisfying answer because I haven't done the work to sort of set up the, the principles there. But um, this idea of representationalism, I think, is quite powerful and I think gives the materialist a lot of um, uh, uh, sort of a lot of um, useful, uh, a useful scaffolding to to mm. approach uh, an understanding of consciousness. The other thing that I'll add to that is I don't think that competing worldviews have any better explanation of consciousness. Usually the strategy is is to argue that the physicalist cannot in principle explain it. 
So like they'll try to make a deductive argument without themselves offering anything better. They'll just say, well, you can't in principle. And so therefore you like materialism must be false. Uh, but I think that those yeah. in principle arguments fail. And then it comes to a matter of, well, who can explain it better? And the dualist or the panpsychist usually just define it into existence by saying, well, there's just this extra thing that just has the property of phenomenal consciousness. Well, now, I don't think that's a very satisfactory answer myself. Just to push back on that, because because I'm I'm pretty much in agreement with um, what I understood there. But the, I have a, a family member who's very into this kind of thought, uh, and they kind of posit. They have you heard of? Um, I forgot what his name is. He wrote. Um, ah, I forgot. I forgot. I forgot what his name is. But I've got it back there, and I'm not going to go looking for it. He, he wrote this book. He was essentially essentially saying um, that we have consciousness first. The first way that we we experience life and everything is through consciousness, right? Um, so uh, the material the material world is unjustified because it's happened. It's only it only uh, reveals itself to us through consciousness. Does that make sense? Is this Bernardo Kastrup? Who's who's that? Sorry. Oh well, he's an idealist, so it sounds like the sort of thing that he argues. Although um, maybe it's not him specifically, but yeah. So I mean, this is an idealist. It, it's argument. Rupert Spira. It's Rupert okay, Spira. No, so sorry, it's not him. But um, yeah. uh, what was I saying? Yeah. So this is an idealist argument that what we have direct access to is the world of ideas or like perceptions and, and thoughts and so forth, and then anything beyond that is sort of inferential. Now. And therefore, and therefore, sort of the argument there is that we should put um, ideas or um, mental states at the grounding, and then anything beyond that is sort yeah. of um, emergent or, or um, develops from or is dependent on on the mind. So, where I I'm still sort of working on a robust response to idealism in my book, but what I would say at the moment is. I think that's sort of true, but I think it gets the inferential step wrong. So what I would say is it's true that in a sense, we do have more direct access to say mental states like um, phenomenal perceptions and things, then we have access to the material world because I think that we have an immediated access to the material world through our perceptions and thoughts. But, but it doesn't follow from that, that the material world is grounded in or like dependent on um, ideas. It only, it only, all that follows is our beliefs about it are dependent on our mental states. So the way I approach well, this is, well, oh, go ahead. Well, what they'll say, what these these people will say is, it's a it's the, 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 the even just discussing the material world, you've begged you're you're begging the you're um sneaking in the conclusion, you're begging the question because there is no material world, there is just consciousness, is what they'll say. And then, so a great this is a, an analogy that I'll, I'll give, right? So me and you were sitting in a, a white room, and I say to you, hey, uh, I say to you, hey, there's more than just this white room, and you say, no, that's bullshit. There's it's just this white room. And I say, no, there's there's way more than this white room. And I leave the white room. I pick up red flower. I come back into this white room and I show you the red flower. And I say, look, here's a red flower. And you say, yes, but that's still in this room. So all that exists is within this room. So then, so so now in this that hypothetical, I'm leaving this room. So it's not exactly the same, not analogous. But the concept is anything that you kind of give, it's unfalsifiable, which pisses me off. But the anything that you give is i can just say yes but that's happening with the inside of consciousness so you're you're unjustly presuming materialism yeah I, I don't i don't see how that's a presumption right so the the claim is that the mental world is found well 
either it's the claim that it's foundational, perhaps that it's all that there is. Those aren't quite the same uh, statement. I, I suppose, yeah, if you're an idealist, you would probably say that it's all that there is, but either way. Um, now, an alternative explanation is that the mental world is not all that there is, that there is some other facet to reality. So merely raising that as an explanatory alternative is not question begging. It's only question begging if in defense of that, I sort of presuppose uh, my view in some way. But but I don't see mm -hmm. how it is because the claim is that, well, and this is what I was going to say before. Um, I think w one question that arises when we seek to explain our perceptions and thoughts and so forth is why are they the way that they are? Why do they have structure and regularity and features and so forth that they do? And in my view, the best explanation of that is to postulate a material world that obeys in accordance with that. Uh, obeys certain laws or has certain regularities to it that all different minds are in uh, interact with and they interact with each other through their through their connection with that physical material world that's a postulate about the structure of reality which is made in order to account for the phenomena that we experience or the, the aspects of uh, of you know phenomenal consciousness and thoughts and memories and so forth that we experience um, i think that ideal idealists struggle to give any account as to why it is that our perceptions, memories, and thoughts are the way that they are without accounting for some kind of structured regularity that stands behind it. Now, they could maintain that that structured regularity is still something mental. Perhaps it's in the mind of God, for example, or it's also some sort of shared constructed dream or something like that. But I feel that that's just very hand-wavy and that the materialist has a very coherent alternative, which is provided by science, which I can ultimately point to fundamental particles, how they behave, force fields and, and interactions and so forth, and state that actually this is the fundamental substrate of reality. And then our uh, all of our thoughts and perceptions are actually grounded ultimately in that. So that's an alternative proposal that accounts for, I think, the, the same phenomena ultimately. And I think it does so in a more successful way. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, and I'll get your thoughts on this, but I'm a little bit of a determinist myself. I, I believe if I drive a stake through my head, my brain will stop working. If I take Valium, I'll feel relaxed. If I take an antidepressant, if I'm depressed, I'll likely become not depressed. If I exercise, I'll feel good. Like, th like, does I'm, anyone disagree I'm... with those? <laughs> well, yeah, most people they're... agree with those. Yeah, I think most people agree with those, but most people don't accept that that the universe is deterministic. Do you think the universe is deterministic? Well, before I answer that question, I'm curious as to why you say that because previously you'd expressed um, a lot of agnosticism about things like whether the universe began to exist or um, or um, the nature of time. I think as well how can you be so sure that the universe is deterministic? Because I myself would say that I'm not sure. Oh, really? Um, well, let me educate you here, James. Um, no, I'm, I'm, this is just, this is... I'm not saying you I'm shouldn't think a, that. I'm just sort of curious as to No, no. Yeah, so, um, so the way, so when I look at like the decisions, well, okay, maybe, maybe I'll soften my language a little bit. I don't think... I think that free will doesn't exist. I don't know if we're we're in a deterministic universe, but I feel I feel like free will doesn't yeah. exist on a fundamental level. I feel I believe it's an illusion, and we will get back to the Kalam, I promise. But what I'm what I'm kind of getting at is, I think that uh, if there is like if you imagine like a rock, right, and uh, a hill, right, and there's a rock on top of the hill, you push the rock down the hill, it rolls down the hill, um, and you know hits a certain spot. If you know every single variable of that rock and the hill and everything, the friction, the temperature, the speed, the velocity, all that stuff, you can predict with 100% certainty um, where that rock is going to land 100% of the time. Like you could run that experiment a billion times over and it would never change. This is uh, this is kind of not, I know that there's some quantum randomness and stuff like that, but just in a 
in without dealing with quantum mechanics just yet, we can predict where it's going to land 100% of the time. So I, I think that our brains are just a much more complicated version of a rock and a hill. And I believe the universe that we're in is a much more complicated version of that. So the environment that we're in, everything like um, is like I, I I don't have I don't have agency in that. Like I can't take like a mass amount of um, you know something that's going to make me unconscious and then fight it off. Like I can't just will it to you know I, I'm trapped by the physical limitations of my brain. I can't just choose to fly. I'm I'm trapped in the physical body that I'm currently in right like i i'm i'm stuck with the limitations of biology and biology is what seems to make um is what's is what seems to drive the processes that build the stuff that's going on in my body so i therefore believe that that's where it's uh, consciousness is coming from and decisions as well yeah so i i agree with that and that's sort of the view of reality that i articulated was sketched when I mentioned uh, naturalism. What I would say, though, is that it doesn't follow from that that we don't have free will, although it does depend on what you mean by free will, of course, like like many things. So yeah. there's a form of free will called libertarian free will or libertarian agency, which I think is the form of free will that you're referring to, which is the idea that we, um, that at least some of our decisions, and maybe all of them, um, are ultimately generated without any antecedent causes. So, or in other words, regardless of what the antecedent set of causes are in your brain and body and the environment, you could still choose to A or to B, even with the exact same physical set of causes and the exact mm. same initial state. And um, I agree that we do not have that type of uh, that type of free will. Um, most physicalists reject that type of free will, although there are some who think that it's still defendable, Wait, but I don't think that it so, is. But that's not the only that's not the only type of free will that's on the table. Well, can you can you rephrase that for me? So you don't think it's possible? Like, so if I have point A and point B, like if I have like, well, like option I can A choose and option B, right? option, option A and option B. Um, do you, do you believe that I was all I'm always going to choose one option? Like there's never like I can't I don't have free agency to choose which option I want to choose, right? Well, you got to be careful there. Like, what, what do you mean by free? Like free in what sense? So <laughs> yeah, that, I'm kind of like, yeah. So there's a sense. So there's a sense in which uh, this is often discussed. So the ability to do otherwise, and what this means is that in the exact same physical configuration. So imagine if all the atoms. Well, the extreme case. Put the all of the subatomic particles in the entire universe in the same configuration. Um, does the same result play out in the same way every time? Um, or do you always choose left or do you always choose right? Um, mm -hmm. Let's assume there's no genuine randomness for the sake of argument because genuine randomness doesn't really get you free agency because randomness isn't free choice, at least most people think. Yeah. That. yeah so yeah. putting that to the side, if in the exact same physical configuration, you always choose the same option and could never do anything else, then um, you don't have the ability to do otherwise. If you think the ability to do otherwise in the exact same physical condition is required for uh, for free will, as libertarians do, then you will you will typically um, think that materialism and uh, free will are incompatible. Yeah. Um, and so that seems to be what you're articulating. What yes, I say I is we don't need that to have free will. That's an erroneous okay. requirement. Okay, interesting. I want to. You could always just say, "Well, I define free will to be this particular way," and you know, okay, yeah, it's kind of boring. The question is, does that have any connection to the uh, naive sort of concept of free will that we have, and the notions of like responsibility and other things that are connected to it? And personally, I don't think it does. I actually think that that's a crazy requirement if you dig into it. Um, okay. Right. Discussion, I, I, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, 
can I give you a random hypothetical and then we'll get back to the and yeah, then sure. ask you what your thoughts are and then we'll get back to the Kalam. But the the so Adam and Eve, right? Let's pretend they're historical the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is a historical fact, right? If God, sure. and let's pretend God is an omniscient, omnipresent being, he knows everything. Um, in those two instances that it's real and God knows everything, he created Adam and Eve knowing exactly what decision they were going to make ahead of time because he knew the environment they'd be in. He knew the the brain chemistry that they had. He knew he could see, he could see that if he put this neuron here and this neuron here, like that, they would make a different decision, but he knew ahead of time that they were going to eat, they, they eat from the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. In which case I would posit that they didn't have free will. There's no universe in which God, if you believe God was omniscient, that God would be surprised God wouldn't go, Oh my gosh, you didn't eat from the tree of good uh, knowledge, good and evil. And I've heard, um, Christian apologists say, well, God just removed his um, knowledge for a short period of time, or God doesn't have all knowledge, and that's how they'll get around it. Would you agree with me that that would be the case if, if like, you have a deterministic universe or the universe that I'm kind of thinking of and you have an omniscient God? Do you think that follows necessarily? Sorry, does what follows? That if God created Adam and Eve with the brain states and the environments that they were in, they couldn't. They had no other option but to eat the fruit. They couldn't have done otherwise, right? Uh, yeah. Well, what theists who believe in free will will typically, say, and not all theists do, but theists who believe in libertarian free will will typically say that the physical state of a body, like Adam and Eve, is not sufficient to account for their behavior. That you need to add in some kind of immaterial spirit or soul, and that that has this special causal power to generate decisions or to um, act volitionally, to um, exercise volition in different ways, even in the exact same physical configuration. So Adam's body could be in exactly the same way, but because of his ability to exercise volition through his um, soul or whatever, um, then in the exact same physical configuration, he could either eat the fruit or not eat the fruit. And okay. then the question is, well, how does that relate to God's knowledge? And theists will say different things about this. Some theists will say, well, God can still know what happens in the future. And then sort of he looks into the future, you know, speaking loosely and then sees what adam chooses there are some theists who think that there is no fact of the matter about what will happen as a result of a free choice because it's open right until you actually choose it and therefore even god doesn't know what will happen in the future those are called open theists they don't think god knows the future i think that that's actually more plausible myself i think that there's a deep I think the notion of libertarian choice is fundamentally incoherent. I don't actually think it makes sense. And so then if you're going to ask, well, would God know the outcomes of libertarian choices? Um, I think you just get into a whole, you get tied in knots because the, the underlying notion you're working with is sort of doesn't, doesn't make sense. Um, mm. But perhaps I'm wrong about that. Um, and you could make sense of the idea that God knows, knows the outcome. But yeah, so we disagree with each other there. So it's a bit hard to nail it yeah, down to a specific course. thing. So in regards, to, just to circle back to the free will thing, you believe that the how I laid out libertarian free will is 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 a high bar, is what you're saying, right? Um, um, well, in a sense that it's not realized, but I don't think it's high in the sense that it's somehow better to have. I think that there's no reason to want libertarian uh, free will like that. I think it's actually very bizarre. I mean, I can sort of see some of the, the philosophical uh intuitions that have that lead there but i think they're ultimately mistaken i think that in a deeper sense you should have should or after reflection you shouldn't want that type of free will and it's not somehow better uh to have it's not like we wish we could have it but 
we we actually mm -hmm. unfortunately can't. I I think it's it's sort of incoherent, uh, and there's no reason to want it. Okay. Okay, so what type of free will do you subscribe to? Well, I, I mean, compatibilism is the broad category that says that you can, um, that you can accept both determinism and free will. Of course, again, understanding that free will here does not mean libertarian free will, or sometimes what's called contracausal free will. Um, so I don't think that we need the ability to do otherwise in order to have free will. I think that free will should be under. I mean, I'm still developing my ideas about this, but I broadly understand free will in line with a particular um, particular approach called reasons responsive accounts of free will. So this locates the notion of freedom in a certain set of cognitive capacities, which broadly would be the ability to understand the consequences or like likely consequences of your actions um, and in some way to be sort of responsive to the reasons that you have to act this way or that way. Um, there's questions about how to, how to um, flesh that out precisely, but the idea would be that, so for a start, for, uh, for a start, like small children and animals would have limited to no um, freedom because they don't have the capacity to understand the consequences of their actions and, um, modulate their actions in accordance with their reasons. They don't have those cognitive capacities. Likewise, people who are significantly cognitively impaired. Um, and the idea is that freedom amounts to being able to have that level of cognitive capacity and the ability to regulate one's behavior in accordance with considerations for and against acting in a certain way. And I think that that matches, I mean, there's work to be done there fleshing that out, but I think that matches much more closely what we actually care about, which is the idea that you can understand the consequences of your actions and you're affected by reasons. Because remember, someone who has libertarian free will, why would you put them in prison for doing the wrong thing? At least from my point of view, because it doesn't matter well, what punishments have, you would be. No, imagine libertarian have... free will was real, right? And then you say, well, we can punish people then because they're responsible for their actions. But why punish them? Because the whole point of libertarian agency is it doesn't matter what deterrence you put in place, they can still choose to do A or to do B, right? They still always have that um, that decision. It seems that we would actually want to live in a universe where we can put in place um, incentives or reasons, rationale that affect people's actions, right? Because if you if you divorce someone's actions from the reasons in place that shape their actions, then I don't actually see how you can preserve a notion of rationality. Proponents of libertarian agency say that you, you can. They say that people act for reasons, but they're not caused by those reasons. But to me, that just leaves a huge underdetermination problem. Like, in other words, how is it that your reasons lead to your actions if, if, it's not, if there's no causal connection? Yeah. Let, let me let me well, give an let me give an example that might make this a bit clearer. So suppose I put so again, let's pretend libertarian free will exists, and let's put a person. Let's say it's Adam, right? We put him in a room, and we say, "Eat the fruit, don't eat the fruit." Mm -hmm. And we say, "Well, it's a different fruit, though. It's not the normal one." Let's say if if one fruit will, um, if he eats one fruit, it will kill him immediately, mm -hmm. and it's let's say it will be painful, and then he will die. And the other one. Um, will give him a bazillion dollars and he'll live happily forever after. I don't know, like whatever, some amazingly yeah, yeah, good yeah. outcome. Um, now, what would you expect to see? Now, remember, we're, we're telling them the outcomes. There's no deception here. We're just saying these are the, these are the options. Now, presumably, you would expect pretty much everyone <laughs> to, to choose the good one and not, not the bad option, right? You, yeah. It would be a bit strange mm -hmm. for someone to choose the painful death when there's no reason for doing so. It's just kind of bizarre. Um, but the point here is that libertarian agency says that it's still open to that person whether they which they choose that they can still choose to do to either one and and what i want to know is well what does that mean like if i set this up a thousand times what does it mean for it to be open like often the way that this is understood is that there are some possible worlds in which the person chooses the painful 
death, right? For, for it to be mm. open to them, there's a possibility. Um, but the question is, well, then, like, how many of these possible worlds are there? It's presumably not 50-50. Is it like 90-10 in terms of possible worlds or is it like 99-100? And then if we're able to, and this is, I think, the key point, if we're able to change the probabilities of people's actions by changing the incentives or the reasons for action, then how does this relate? So it seems that we can have a causal effect on people's decisions by changing the, the environment and the, and the reasons they have for acting. But if we can causally affect people's decisions based on causes in the environment, then that seems to undermine the idea that the person can act regardless of, of the of the circumstances, that they can choose the good or the bad, like the, the painful death or the, the good option. Um, but it seems that they kind of can't, right? Because we've set it up so that causally we're, we're almost making it certain that they choose the uh, one option because we're causally affecting their decision. I don't think you can have it so that the person, because libertarians want to say that it's all internal to the person, which option they choose, irrespective of the, you know, the physical setup or whatever the, the um, initial conditions. But on the other hand, they want to say that that person will also be sensitive to reasons for acting. But then it seems that if you change the reasons, you causally affect them to act in a certain way. And that violates the whole idea that they can act irrespective of yeah you know the initial circumstances but what if there is someone who just is just born and they love pain more than anything else and then they want to have a painful death like what like um you know there's that famous case where you know there's that person he had a brain tumor he killed his family mm -hmm. killed a bunch of people and he told them to do a um a autopsy on his brain and they did an autopsy they found a tumor pressing on part of his brain and they positive that that was the reason he went on some psych psychotic rage um killing everyone like that person didn't necessarily would you say that person chose to make those decisions to kill his family or would you say that like he was like his brain was affected by something outside of his control um well well this this raises an issue for the libertarians as much as it perhaps more than it does for compatibilists because if changes to people's brains can affect their choices in like a regularly and statistically detectable way then how can we understand the idea that someone has a choice to do a or b irrespective of what the physical state of affairs is the whole point of libertarian agency is that you are the first cause of your actions and it doesn't matter what the causes are acting on you you can still choose a or b you can go either way but the thing is it seems that that's false right like you can cause people to do things maybe not with 100 percent certainty but you can dramatically change the probabilities by changing the incentives in the environment by talking to them by fiddling around in their brain that like there's all sorts of ways we have for doing that and so that doesn't yeah, but, seem to work for me that but, you can causally affect, affect people's choices yeah like let's say we gave um we gave adam and eve like a bunch of like like i don't know um xanax or something and they were so chilled out they never got the tree and ate the tree of knowledge good and evil whatever but that's what i'm saying i'm saying that like i don't think we have that free will like i don't think we have that choice I, i'm so i'm not quite sure i'm understanding your argument so the the reason that i relate um the, the reason i was talking about the relationship between causation and reasons is because i think that what you want to say is that people act for reasons uh, sorry what the libertarians want to say is that we act for reasons they want to say that we're capable of apprehending reasons and acting on the basis of it but they don't want to say all of our actions are causally determined because that would undermine the whole notion of libertarian agency right well but yeah i'm I guess saying that, you can't I'm, have I'm both of those things so which of them do right. i reject i reject the idea that we should be worried about whether our actions are causally determined i think they are causally determined 
put put aside indeterminism for the moment. I think that they are causally determined, but that's okay. consistent with having freedom because a from my view, the requirement for freedom isn't that your actions are causally non-determined. I think that that is actually silly. Rather, the requirement is that you have some kind of sufficient cognitive capability to understand the consequences of your actions and act um, in accordance with the reasons that you have, at least sort of to within some statistical regularity. We could argue about exactly what that looks like. So a certain degree of brain injury is going to progressively remove that capacity to understand and act in accordance with one's reasons. I don't want to say precisely what that looks like. And I think freedom is something that comes in degrees. Um, this is another point where I differ. I don't think you either have free will or not. I think that you have levels of freedom depending on your capacity to understand and act in accordance with the reasons that you have. So the worse the brain damage is, I think perhaps the more impaired someone is uh, in terms of, of exercising freedom. And it's going to depend on the specifics in that in cases like that. Interesting. That's super. I'm going to have to think more about that because I think you may have put me on a path to sway my perspective a little bit because <laughs> I don't because I'm I'm I I need to think about it more. But that seems um, I'm a bit of a slow learner, so I, I take a while to process a thought. But that's interesting. That's really interesting. Well, I've been thinking about these ideas for years and trying to read a lot, and I, I'm still. <laughs> Yeah, early stages, so I, I wouldn't feel bad. <laughs> okay, uh, so going back to the Kalam, so um, so you, you you so back back to the Kalam. We got the first premise right, and you're saying before we even get to the first premise, the universe began to exist. We you've got an issue with uh, the pre, uh, pre presuppositions we have around time. Um, yeah. uh, a theory or B theory, which is tensed or tenseless time. Can you please explain? Yeah. Uh, the difference just quickly um, between the two. Yeah, so I sort of mentioned this before. So the tensed theory of time, I'll call it presentism, which is close enough. So presentism is what Craig is. Presentism says that only the present exists. So mm -hmm. me talking to you now, that's presumably part of the present. So that exists. Uh, the start of this conversation, that's in the past. That doesn't exist anymore. The end of this conversation, that's in the future. It doesn't exist either. And what and happens what is that exist? What does exist mean there? Part part of reality. So right. um, okay. So the idea is that there is a succession of um, periods of time. Only the present exists. The present then gives rise to the next period of time, which which uh, so then what was present goes out of existence. It it did exist, but no longer does. And then what was future now becomes present, and now it does exist. And so you have this objective process of temporal becoming is the phrase that Craig uses. And so things objectively come into and go out of existence. Right. That's what the presentist thinks. And that's what Craig thinks. And that's what Craig thinks you need for the Kalam to work. Now, the alternative view, um, which we can call the tense less theory, it's also called the block theory of uh, time, says that this notion of objective temporal becoming is is nonsense. There is no such thing. There's no such thing as an objective present or past or future. All there is are earlier than and later than relations between different uh, points in time. So what I would say as a tense less theorist is that the start of this conversation was early. Was earlier. Uh, sorry, the the start of this conversation existed in the earlier than direction in time, and the end of this conversation exists in the later than direction. All. All of those exist alongside the, the um, I, should, I can't say the present moment technically, what I say is the, um, the part of time that's simultaneous with what I'm saying now. All of yeah. these parts of the conversation exist. They're all real. It's just that they don't exist 
here, right? They exist over there and, and back there. And by that, I mean, like, not spatially, but I mean, in terms of temporal relations. So the tenseless theory of time is sometimes called a, a spatialized view of time because it views time as basically like another dimension of space. It's just that the, the main difference is that you can't go backwards and forwards in the temporal uh, dimension like you can spatial dimensions. You can only go forwards at the same speed. Well, so how does that, like, so with the, obviously, you, you know, with the Hubble telescope, right, we can, we can see back millions of billions of years into the yeah. existence yeah so how does how does william lane craig kind of cross that like well, how that does he... i don't think that has any philosophical implications because the idea is that the photons that were released at let's say five billion years ago um mm -hmm. those photons have been traveling for five billion years and so the event in question is the hubble telescope detects a certain photon and that event occurs maybe it's happening right now so um the um that event will so, occur as part of the present reality, according to Craig. But what Craig right. wants to say is that the emission of that photon, that doesn't exist anymore. That went out of existence 5 billion years ago. Whereas I would say that still exists. It just exists 5 billion years back that away, so to speak, in the earlier yeah, this direction. This is, this is so, this is so complicated. I, I do, I, I, for me anyway, like I'm, I'm, um, I, I'm going to rewatch this, this conversation to try and wrap my head around it. Um, so, uh, Michael Granada, when he came on, he said, and he was very careful with his wording. So, um, and he said, like, he has to be careful, but he says a large portion of 21st century phys physics lends itself to B, B theory, not A theory. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a more careful version of what I said earlier, which is that if you interpret general relativity uh, realistically, then I think that you will support or you will, um, uh, you will accept the B theory or the, the tenseless theory. Right. So something that you you uh, wrote uh, in your book, which I really loved, um, and like I said, I'm only up to like page 30, 30, 33, but you kind of bring up the fact that William Lane Craig kind of states that his reason for believing in um, uh, tense time is essentially a subjective um, experiential one. So he says, yeah. so he says the reality of tense uh, is experienced um, by us in a variety of ways, which are so evident and so persuasive, uh, pervasive, sorry, um, that the belief in the objectivity, objective reality of past, present and future and in the passage of time is a universal feature of human existence. And you said in your video, which um, is on your channel, that you have to be careful whenever when anyone uses that kind of wording, a feature of human existence, experience, sorry. Experience, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Craig and, is, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no go, uh, well, actually, what, what, well, I was just going to, what you kind of point out, and we, which is what I really love, you say quantum mechanics provides an example of a field whose findings stand directly in contrast um, to many of our basic intuitions and direct experiences of the way the world is. We experience space as continuous rather than discrete, um, objects as passing, um, objects as possessing a definite location rather than being spread over a region of varying probabilities, and objects as moving smoothly from one place to another rather than suddenly jumping to a new location with some probability. Indeed, our intuitions about space and time are easily shown to be inaccurate even in the most familiar settings. Yeah. So, yeah, I love that. That was, to me, that, 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 I guess that to me in that sentence, you kind of described the whole prospect of kind of the whole, even, even, even the debate around um, scientific um, 
the scientific method and like subjective experience that someone might experience in like a temple or a church or something, right? Where they, they have this experience, they make some conclusions based on this ex experience. Like from, for me, I used to speak in tongues and I was part of a Pentecostal oh, wow. church, right? So I used to have these experiences and I would draw conclusions from these experiences. Um, but you know, I had no, there's no, there's no, it's, it's completely the polar opposite of how like the scientific method works and how we like determine, make deterministic, uh, determine determinations on the universe that we live in. Um, yeah. So what were you saying? Sorry, before I cut you off. Well, this is the issue with Craig is that in fact, if you look throughout, um, all of, so remember I talked about how Craig needs to make quite a lot of assumptions in order for his, to defend his premises for the Kalam to work. Almost all of these premises, in fact, I th I'm trying to think if there are any exceptions. I don't think there are. Basically, all of these um, things that he needs to assume, he has various arguments defending them. But in all cases, the primary, and he thinks the most significant argument in favor of them, is just that it's intuitively obvious. So he appeals to his own personal experience and intuition um, repeatedly throughout all of his arguments. And this isn't really surprising because Craig has been very open about the fact that this is his real reason for being a Christian in the first place, his own mm. subjective experience of the Holy Spirit. And he says that that's the real reason that he's a Christian, the primary reason, and that even if all of his arguments failed and were shown to fail, and even if there were many arguments that he couldn't refute for atheism, then he would still be a Christian uh, because of these experiential um well, these experiences that he's had. So this shouldn't come as a surprise, but I do think that it's important to know this when um, addressing Craig's philosophical arguments is because at the base of pretty much all of them, there's going to be an appeal to his own intuition slash personal, well, his own interpretation of his experience is the way I would say it. Although he usually use, universalizes that. So he says that the way everyone experiences things is the way he does. And mm -hmm. I don't accept that. So he says it's about the nature of time, the, the notion of um, uh, the notion of like libertarian agency, uh, the no, the uh, concepts of infinity. He says that it's obvious that um, you know infinities can't exist. Um, he says this about the notion of causation, like it's obvious that things can't come into being without a cause. So he um, he appeals to his own experience and his own intuitions here a lot. And I just don't accept that those are reliable. I mean, you gave a quote from from the book where I sort of give one reason for thinking that that we should regard such intuitions or interpretations of our experience as highly suspect because we know that even with things that are fairly familiar like space and ordinary objects that we can be wildly inaccurate um, in intuitions about their sort of underlying nature our intuitions are really only suited and interpreting our experiences only really suited to everyday types of tasks with sort of every uh, ordinary sized objects and um, fairly narrow range of experience once you move beyond that i, I think that they become extremely unreliable and shouldn't be trusted. But Craig just doesn't seem to agree with that. He just seems quite happy to appeal to um, his own interpretation of his intuitions about things. Um, and that's has, just has really interesting to me. Illusion? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the usual response is to say, well, yeah, sure, sometimes our perceptions can be uh, mistaken, but that's an unusual case, and most of the time they're reliable. That's the usual response, and I just think that that's sort of factually wrong. It depends on what the it depends what the reference class is that you're looking at, right? If you say, well, what about recognizing ordinary objects that people are familiar with in good lighting when people are sober and so forth? Okay, sure. Then generally perception is reliable. But that's actually not what we're talking about. We're talking about perception or like interpreting your experience when it comes to origin of the universe, infinity, the fundamental nature of time or, or freedom, right? I mean, how do you expect our intuitions to have any bearing on those cases? And, um, 
yeah, I just Craig, I just think Craig doesn't really have much to justify him on this point. I think he's just relying on people to have the same intuitions as he is. Mm. So, so you got you got issues there um, with, straight away before we even at premise one. Um, but let's say, like you, you mentioned in your book, and and you have to forgive me because I I haven't gotten that this much further into your book yet. But you say that you do eventually go. Let's posit that it's correct. Let's posit a theory is correct that. Um, that um that uh so uh i forgot what the terminology you used was sorry um tense time is correct um mm. you address these arguments there how do you address do you think there are still problems going forward after that even if you do accept the tense time oh nope sneeze came yeah. but, but left um well yes because uh that just gets you up to the premise the universe began to exist and then mm -hmm. Craig needs to establish that the universe began to exist. So as I said, he appeals to both scientific and philosophical arguments. Um, I don't think that either of those are very successful. I think the, the scientific arguments are much more convincing than the philosophical ones. But ultimately, I think the appropriate attitude to have is one of uh, agnosticism. I don't think that we know whether the universe began to exist in any sort of ultimate sense. Um, yeah, there's a lot to say about that that we, we don't have time to get into here. But um, a lot of the philosophical arguments also rely on appeals to intuition about Hilbert's Hotel or um, people writing diaries for infinite time past and whether you think that that makes sense and so forth. But um, mm. yeah, I, I, I don't think that any of those are ultimately very convincing. Uh, what we'll do is, um, because we are coming up to time, um, I want to first promote your book, which is is this, it's, it's dense okay like i just can't i can't get over how well you've um you've kind of done this book uh you also have a youtube channel um i want to kind of promote this um promote promote some stuff and then we'll go to another question but sure. check out the book on uh amazon and the link is in the description and you also have a podcast that you've been doing for how many years did you say uh about 12 years with, with some with some gaps in there that that's incredible um <laughs> <laughs> how old were you when you started this this so that must have been oh 20 i think oh geez wow cool i need um, to change that cover image by the way that they recently changed that on me i i don't know who that woman is it's just a random okay. i need to update okay. that <laughs> awesome uh and uh so that's the science of everything.net um and mm. and uh, links will be in the description also guys make sure if you haven't subscribed make sure to subscribe tomorrow morning australia time which will be well, in 12 hours time, we're doing a book club. So me and uh, Gnostic Informant are going to bring out 10 or 11 of our favorite books each and explain why. So this will be a bookshelf tour, which will be really cool. Uh, and also, if you want to support this channel, you can become a member of the channel now and you can also join the Patreon. We have an, a disrupted interview with Pepe, um, a Ugandan uh, LGBT uh, activist. Um, and obviously with the laws that are happening over there at the moment where um, you can be imprisoned now just for being trans. Um, that's getting pushed through. So um, you can watch that if you're a Patreon member. Um, so thank you so much, everyone. So the so what I want to what I want to say uh, what I want to ask you is so we kind of just even just touched on the first premise, but is there a premise in here that you think is the worst premise, like the premise that just falls over, or is what do you that... mean the least plausible premise? Least plausible. Yeah, I'll, I'll use my I'll use my wording correctly because I'm talking to a philosopher here. So. Least plausible, yes. Well, I think that the least plausible premise is is the last one, that if the universe had a cause, that cause must be personal. And this is the premise that by far gets the least discussion, um, which I think is unfortunate, precisely because it's, 
I think the least plausible and, and in some ways the most interesting. So basically this is where, let's say that we think the universe did have a cause, right? And remember, this is all the strict or narrow form of the column attempts to establish the universe had a cause. A naturalist, I think, can fairly readily accept that. Um, well, there's a little mm -hmm. bit of work you need to do, but it, it's not obviously inconsistent with naturalism. Um, and it's certainly consistent with being an atheist, right? Um, to get to, from to get from the universitative cause to theism, you need to establish that that cause must have been God, essentially, and that you rule out all the other possibilities. And I think that the uh, Craig devotes very little time to actually doing this. Um, as I said, that there are really only two arguments. One is there are no other alternatives, which is just a laughable argument because he doesn't even try to come up with other alternatives. And so I present some other alternatives in my in my book um, that are neither God nor like physical. Um, I don't believe in these other alternatives, right? But the point is that you, you can't just say there aren't any without trying to see, well, like, has anyone offered any possibilities or is there anything we can even think of as possibilities? Well, there are, right? So it's just a laughably silly argument. Um, I don't know why no one's pulled him up on that before because it just always struck me as dumb. Um, but then the, the other argument that he gives in favor of the personal cause is to say that, well, you need to postulate a, a libertarian agent in order to solve this problem of how it is that the universe started um, without um yeah how it is that the universe began in a you know in the sense of absolute becoming um with a cause but without existing from eternity past because basically this gets a little bit technical but craig said craig thinks that there's a problem here is that either what you're going to get is the universe is never caused to happen so we just have no universe or it existed for an infinite time past because basically whatever the cause was well uh, the idea is why did it sort of wait a while I have to put wait in quotes there because it's not like it waited through time but why why if, if the cause was eternal why did the cause not give rise to the effect uh with the effect coexisting eternally with the cause um and and that's the fun that's the issue that, that craig wants to present so he wants to say well the cause of the universe can't be something that began to exist because then you'd ask well what caused that to begin to exist and then that gives you a, a regress so then it seems that the cause must be eternal or at least like existing outside of time but if the cause exists outside of time then how is it that you get a universe that just began a finite time in the past he thinks that if you have an eternal cause you must have an eternal effect and so he presents this problem here well how is it that the universe was caused um but but was caused to begin a finite time in the past. And he says the answer to this is, well, it must be a libertarian agent, which exercised its volition to just bring about the universe. Um, and he goes into some more detail about why he thinks that that's a solution. But yeah. I just think that this is entirely a pseudo problem. All you have to do, even if you buy into everything else that he says, is simply say, well, yeah, whatever it is that caused the universe has a special causal power where it can give rise to a, a temporal universe. This is exactly what Craig thinks, right? He thinks that God is such a being, but all you have to deny is that is that this special cause of the universe is a personal agent. That there's just no inconsistency there. Craig is just sort of assuming that you have no imagination <laughs> and you're accepting his word mm -hmm. when he says it has to be a personal agent. Well, no, no, no. It, it can just have a, a, a special type of causal power. We're postulating an entity that exists outside of time, which has a causal power of bringing about the initial state of the universe um, from, a, for, from an atemporal state. You can postulate mm. that as an explanatory entity, and it's better than what Craig does because what Craig does is postulates an entity with this special power. In addition, it has all other powers. It's omniscient and it's om omnipotent and it's omnibenevolent. It's got all of these other things as well. Whereas, in fact, that's not necessary at all. All that you need to postulate is an entity 
that has just the sufficient power to bring about the initial state of the universe. Anything beyond that is postulating more than is needed. It's excessive. And therefore, it's, I think um, it's, it's, not a good, it's not a good argument. I feel like um, the, those who like uh, the uh, Kalam are people who have already bought into their positions and the people who um, would like to criticize it um, kind of get to the first, like they, 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 they think it's so easy to criticize. They don't put as much work into it that you have. And I think that's where, that's why no one has written the book that you've written because you've, you've taken what seems like, you see, if I got, if I was you and I got to that last premise and I saw how silly that was, um, I would, or even the first premise, I would just kind of, go, well, no one needs to write a book on this. Like this is, this <laughs> is very, you know, but you did. Um, so I really do recommend people get the book if they have any interest in discussing these um, these points with your um, conspiratorial uncle at Christmas. Um, well, I think definitely. that's the problem, right? Because the more sensible people like you who don't spend all this time on these arcane points just sort of, you know, well, don't necessarily give it that much time. And, and what that does is it leaves, for the most part, the people who just sort of find this stuff intuitive for whatever reason, like Craig does, or who basically just sort of wants to believe or are pre-committed to believe in the conclusion for various reasons. Yeah. Um, and so give the argument uh, mostly a free pass. I don't want to say that all theists are like that, but I think there are theists like that. Um, and, and therefore, it's kind of an echo chamber where everyone's sort of saying, oh, isn't this such a great argument or it's so persuasive or you can't get around the Kalam. You know, you see these sorts of discussions. But I, I think that it's... um. There are many aspects of the climb that aren't that hard to, I mean, some of them get a bit technical philosophy of time and, you know, general relativity, but some of these points like, well, if there was a cause of the universe, it must be a God. Like you only have to think about that for a few minutes to think, well, no, there's all sorts of things that could have caused the universe. I, I don't know what it was, but it doesn't have to be a God, right? It could, it could be all sorts mm -hmm. of things. You just need a little bit of imagination and to think through it for a few minutes, but it's surprising how this, that doesn't get raised a lot. And I think it's because, yeah, a lot of the people who engage with the argument do so in fairly stereotyped ways. Like they all start debating uh, the Hilbert's Hotel, right? Which I think is less interesting than just just jump straight to the point. Does, does suppose the universe had a cause? Does it have to be God, or could it be something else? Yeah, you know, and I sort of encourage I, I, that sort of more focused way of dealing with things. I do want to, um, I do want to kind of shout out. Um, I'm on. You would normally see that I've watched a few of your videos, but I'm on uh, my other account. But you do, uh, where, where was it? You do these like seven hour long um, videos, which is amazing. So that's the bad um, apologetics series. Oh, the bad apologetics. So they're not uh, on this channel. They're on Nathan's channel. Digital no. Oh, okay. You've got a seven oh, except hour for that one. Yeah, that was five hundred yeah, one that we five hundred arguments against Christianity, which is. It's just amazing. Um, but where's the, you had one where you're actually going through your book. Um, where I'm just Yeah, so those have my book as the thumbnail. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That makes sense. So if you want to actually see you go through the book uh, and you kind of explain things in greater detail, it's fantastic. I really believe people should go subscribe to your channel and, and um, listen to at least the first two videos and then see if you want to pick up the book um if you're still on the fence but it's it's fantastic 500 uh five hour arguments yeah it's um it's uh it's amazing so um so i do i don't want to get into hilbert's hotel because that'll consume the last <laughs> five minutes that we have but i do want to ask a, a few questions if um yeah sure uh, of you so with all the research that you've done uh do you think william lane craig is a bad faith actor uh, I've gotten into trouble uh, saying this before, uh, and one of the reasons I don't like to talk about it so much is because I think it's more important to simply address the arguments than to 
speculate about his psychological state. That being said, mm -hmm. we've spent most of the time talking about that since, since you've asked. Um, I, I don't think that uh, Craig is sort of entirely bad faith. I do think that he uses certain tactics slash arguments in bad faith. Um, I haven't I've debated about whether to try to put the evidence for this together in one video. And I, I just haven't been convinced that it's worth the time doing because then people will just attack you for focus for an ad hominem, whatever. But there are a few points that I highlight throughout my book where I think that it's hard to argue that he's acting entirely in good faith. One example that I, I think that is probably the simplest to understand is in Craig's presentation of the ontological argument. I document this in that there's a section of my book at the end where I talk briefly about that. Craig doesn't talk a lot about the ontological argument, but he does sometimes present it. And there's one presentation where he, and he's done this a number of times, where he will say that um, one formulation of the ontological argument is essentially that um, if it is possible that God exists, then God exists. It's possible that God exists, therefore God exists. Now that might sound kind of silly. I won't sort of get into why we're interested in that. But the, the point here is that in presenting this argument to a you know popular mainstream audience, Craig will say, well, actually, most philosophers think that they agree with the first premise. Most philosophers agree that if it is possible for God to exist, then God exists, right? And and he's right, right? And all he means there is that most people think that God is a necessary being. So if it's possible that he exists, then he does. Like it's not, it could have existed, but maybe does. Like it's it's a kind of an all or nothing thing, so to speak. So he is right when he says that most philosophers agree with the first premise. Of course, then the issue is, is it possible for God to exist? But then what he does, uh, so far so good. But then what he does is he, he appeals to the audience and says, well, what do you think? Is it possible for God to exist? If you think it's possible, then you will think that God actually does exist by the first premise. And the reason this is intellectually dishonest is because Craig is using two different notions of possibility here. In the first premise, he's using the notion of metaphysical possibility, which is like, uh, is there a possible world in which God exists? And that's a sort of a technical notion. In the second premise, when he appeals to the audience, he's, well, the second premise technically should be using the same sense of possibility, which is metaphysical possibility. But when he's appealing to the audience and asking them, what do you think? Do you think it's possible for God to exist? He's appealing to a an epistemic notion of possibility, which just means as far as you know. And that's a very different mm. notion of possibility. You can have something that's epistemically possible, but not metaphysically possible. Um, I suppose vice versa as well. But um, So the point is there, he is clearly and unambiguously, in my opinion, equivocating in, in presenting that argument. I don't think there's any ambiguity there. That is what he is doing in appealing to that. Because otherwise you wouldn't you wouldn't say, do you think it could? Because that's just an erroneous usage of, of the notion of possibility relative to the first premise. So, and Craig is far too smart to do that by accident. So I think the only explanation here is that he does that because it's um, it sort of sells well. It, it goes down well with a, a crowd. It's like, huh, well, if most philosophers think this, and I think it's at least possible for God to exist, without sort of understanding the nuances of the difference between metaphysical and um, uh, and epistemic possibility. So I think, mm -hmm. I mean, there are other examples, but that's actually the one that I think is clearest and easiest to explain. I think Craig is being dishonest and disingenuous when he does that. He does other tricks like this as well, like selectively quoting experts, um, using using an argument in ways that are inconsistent between two different things that he says, which he would know, but he's hoping other people don't don't notice. I document some of these in my book. So I, I don't think that Craig is like, I think that he believes the things that he says. I just think that yeah, he yeah. takes these liberties because he thinks that he can get away with it. And ultimately his purpose is to spread Christianity and reinforce, you know, the, the faithful. And that's his fundamental objective. His fundamental, his, his, what's most important to him is not intellectual honesty. It's, you know, pursuing uh, apologetics. And so yeah. I think that he takes these liberties and shortcuts when he can. And I think that there are cases where you can fairly clearly document that he does that. Yeah. Um, 
Of course, I should answer that. People who don't like that will make excuses to try to say, oh, well, you know, he meant this or, you know. So you can, if you, if you, I believe in in being good faith in the way you interpret people, but there's always a limit, right? Like you can always make up excuses to justify any behavior. But my opinion is when you look at cases like that and others that I've seen, that the best explanation is that there are cases where Craig um, is dishonest in the way that he makes certain arguments or or what he appeals to. Others may yeah. disagree based on their background, and that that's fine. But that's my own opinion based on what I've read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you do you think most apologists are intellectually dishonest? In the sense that I just articulated there. Yeah, like there's a sense in which, well, they're just total frauds, and they're just like saying things that they think. Yeah, are, I, I, I don't think. I, don't, I think a I lot of. Think that. I, I think that's like one percent of apologists or preachers are like not even that. I think it's very. I don't think a lot of them are scammers, you know, like Peter Popoff or something. I think a lot of people <laughs> yeah. believe what they believe, believe, but they then twist it and lie about it and stuff like that. How many of those, like how you just described it, how many apologists do you think are Oh, I think the majority, most? but it must be said that I think that that's true for popularizers of pretty much any ideology. So I don't actually have any data uh, on whether atheist uh, popularizers are like more intellectually or less intellectually. Sorry, I forget what I said. I don't know that atheist popularizes. I mean, yeah, 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 many, yeah, yeah. right? But I, I, I don't know that they're actually more intellectually honest. I'd like to think that they are, but I don't actually have any data on that. I haven't looked into as much detail. I focus more it's, on apolog- apologetics and countering that, so I see those. But I see a lot of bad it, arguments in atheist and rationalist spheres as well. It is very like it's it's very tempting to uh, to take rhetorical wins if you're in a debate with someone, uh, and yeah, it just be sloppy. Takes- yeah, it'll be sloppy and use and, arguments know, that you know are kind of dodge, but it's just sort of easy to use them. You know, things like yeah, that. you can get it, you can get them to shut up about one point, so you can move on to the point you really want to talk about or something like that. Like, I've done yeah. that in the past where I have to pull myself in, like, well, someone challenges me, and I go, actually, no, I need to think about this. It's when you're in the heat of the moment too. So, so my, that was actually a pre-question to the question I wanted to ask, which was, who do you think is the most honest apologist that exists? Yeah, I mean. I don't know that I'd like to an- answer the question quite that way, but maybe okay. a, an apologist that I respect the most or, yeah. or something yeah, like that, you respect that the which most, is yeah. in- intellectually speaking, obviously I, I don't want to comment on uh, what people like personally, but, but in terms of intellectual, yeah, yeah. Um, I have a fair bit of respect for Sean McDowell. Um, he does um, post some stuff that I think is a bit cringe, but I, I think he's more fair than a lot of other apologists that I've seen. Um, yeah. And um I, th- I was trying to think if there was another one. Oh, yes, there was another one. Um, what's his face? Mike Lacona as well. I do have a fair bit of respect for him. One of the reasons yeah. is because he has actually gotten in trouble with uh, his employer or maybe former employer. I'm not quite sure. He because, got fired. Yeah, he got fired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he he was raising some questions about one of their uh, aspects of um, their, um, what are they called? The statement of faith that they have to sign. Uh, you know, and he's talked about having genuine doubts and other things like that, which, for example, Craig has never, ever said anything about having doubts. And that's because I don't think he ever does have any because of the way he, or if he does, they're so suppressed down and everything that, whereas Mike McConaughey has talked openly about that, right? So I, I have respect for Mike McConaughey intellectually mm. um, that I don't have for Craig, for example. Um, Mike so, McConaughey, so, I, I definitely so there are a couple. agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, two last questions. I'm, I'm sorry we're going a little bit over time, but um, let's say, have you got any kids or anything? No. Okay. Let's say uh, you had a kid and they like came up to you and they said, I had a dream and they retold and it's like it was I was in another life and they retold this thing that was extraordinary. Right. That was extraordinary coincidence of something that actually happened in like World War Two or something. And um, 
where I'm kind of getting at is um, there are a lot of like documentaries that kind of pose the same idea that's that their child started having dreams. They looked into like some medical records or some military records and they found that that it perfectly um, aligned with something that happened in history that, that the child never knew about. And the child is saying that like, I'm, re I'm reincarnated from that person. What, do, what would you make of that if your child came to you and said something like that? And there was some, uh, some evidence behind it in regards to, there was some uh, uh, like power, like a, like um, geez, my brain is not working. Um, I'm normally drinking when I do these things, so I'm normally probably worse. Um, the like uh, explanatory power, some explanatory power, like so they they oh you know I dr I dreamed that I was in a plane. The plane's number was one four two three X Y. We drowned, and then they they go there and they 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 find that there was this plane there, and there was that pilot of the same. You know, what would you make of that? So like, would that change? Coincidence. Yeah, it's like incredible coincidence. Yeah, incredible, what you... incredible coincidence. Well, I mean, I have investigated quite a few claims like that, not not by people I know personally, but through interactions on the internet and uh, cases that I've read about. Um, in every single case that I have investigated in detail, um, and there would be dozens by now um, over the years. Uh, the, the reported facts are not the actual facts as far as they can be verified. And the actual facts lend themselves inevitably of more mundane explanations. Now, I don't mm. like giving that as a response because you could, you know, it's one of these proven negatives, right? Or prove there isn't one where they, they don't, they can't be explained in that way. Well, obviously that's impossible. So it's a whack-a-mole, right? It's, well, what about this case? What about that case? Um, so it's a never ending. Uh, it's never. Ending so it'd be, it'd be like, the child says something like, oh, I was in a plane that crashed and there was a number seven on there. And then they find this plane that crashed that had like seven, four, two, six, four, six. And then they say, oh, the child knew the number when it was really just one number of the, you know, whatever. Well, yeah, like, there, are, there are cases, I mean, not yeah. the specifics, but cases like knowing things that they couldn't have known. And, and often what you don't have is, for example, documentation that there was an actual, that someone actually knew something and that they couldn't have known it um, in any other way. So mm. you'll get them saying post hoc that they knew it, but couldn't have known it any other way but well how, how can you prove that like it's actually very difficult that you have to be able to control a lot of variables to be able to be convinced well reasonably convinced that, that that couldn't have happened and that's exactly what we try to do in scientific investigation is to control those variables and and what you don't have is any of these sorts of uh, phenomena being replicable or documented under controlled conditions but your mm -hmm. initial question wasn't about that it, exactly it was about what i would say to my child or maybe someone else that i knew yeah well, and, how would you I, cross the t and like dot the i's there yeah. Well, what I would say is, well, what do you think happened? And then maybe they would say something and, and I would say, oh, well, why do you think that? Or do you think there are any other possible explanations? Or how would you know if you were wrong about this? So just, you know, opening up questions like that. I mean, it would depend on how old the child was or the, the person was and so forth. But I, I don't, particularly if it's a, like a, a younger person, I don't want to be prescriptive about, oh, this is what I think. And so that's the right answer. Yeah. I think much more important is the process of, of thinking, thinking things through. And I think one of the most important things to do um, is to practice um, thinking of alternative explanations and then trying to work out, well, how could you adjudicate between them? Often what we do is we stop at the first explanation that seems plausible to us. And that is a mm. terrible epistemic practice. Everyone is guilty of this. I like to think that I'm better because I think about this a lot and, you know, I, I, I kind of autistic as well with, with like with these sorts of things as illustrated by the book, for example. But, uh, but, but everyone falls prey to this sometimes. And some people fall prey to it, I think almost all the time, where it's the first thing that sort of satisfies the curiosity or that assuages their concerns or that fits their biases, whatever, they just accept that. And they don't question it 
uh, or they don't ask for competing explanations or seek out a different view. And I think that that's one of the most important things to um, to foster. That's kind of why I wrote the book in a sense, because I want simultaneously, I want theists to think more carefully about these sorts of arguments. And often they don't, they just sort of agree with what Craig says, because, you know, he's defending what they believe. But I also think a lot of atheists don't think about them too seriously either, because they sort of dismiss it as, oh, that's kind of silly. And even if they're kind of right that in some sense it is silly, like there's still there's still substance there. There are still deep questions to be addressed about like time and you know freedom in the universe and stuff like that. And they can't all be dismissed by just saying it's silly. Um, there's there's work to be done there. Um, and so I, I sort of want to encourage you know people from different perspectives mm. to um, take seriously uh, the arguments and, and address them on their merits. That's great. That's that's um, I, I like that. Um, last question. Um, what if anything would change your mind on the uh, god well, about about what specifically uh, the god belief oh about theism mm. um yeah I, I thought about this i mean it really depends on the specifics of what theism we're talking about like what particular belief um i, I think if we're talking about the traditional omni god i think the most important thing would be a resolution of the problem of evil because i think that's the single if you're assuming god is all good if you're not assuming that oh sorry if you're assuming god is all good and all powerful i should say if mm. we reject one of those two things and this ceases to be a problem but that's a part of the traditional notion of god so if we take if we keep those two things i think that's the single biggest problem uh with with that form of theism and so that's not something where it's a question of evidence per se although i suppose evidence could come to light that would help us to understand that at least theoretically, but I think it's just a fundamental problem um, that keeps me away from that form of theism. Um, and so some argument or evidence relating to that um, that helps a long way to resolve this would probably be the single biggest thing for me, but it wouldn't be mm -hmm. sufficient by itself because there are lots of reasons why I reject theism. So I don't think any single piece of evidence or, or argument would be sufficient. But in terms of blockers, that's probably the single biggest one. One thing I will say is that no personal experience well, I can't necessarily say what would happen. No personal experience should convince me that God existed, like, or yeah. he, if he appeared to me or did a miracle, because I don't think any, any certainly no single singular experience or event like that would justify such a belief. In fact, even if we could replicate miracles like that, I think that it would be more plausible that they were caused by aliens than by uh, a deity. So <laughs> I think that Do, evidence like that is not, or should not be convincing. Are you a fan of Hume? Oh, very much so. Yes, he's my favorite philosopher. Okay. Though I certainly don't agree with everything he said, but I really like his approach. Yeah, it's the same. Uh, have you read Hume's Abject Failure? I haven't read it. No, I've read a bit about it. Okay, I'd love to get your opinion on that because that was, I read it. Michael Jones suggested I read it. I read it, and I was, um, I'm, I, my brain is not big enough to understand what I was even kind of comprehending there, especially with the Bayesian analysis. Um, I'll send you the PDF, but. Yeah, I think it comes down to interpreting what Hume was saying, which there is a lot of dispute about. And that's the sort of thing that I'm not really very interested in. Uh, exegesis yeah. of dead philosophers just doesn't interest me that much, <laughs> even though I do respect Hume a lot, whether he was talking about like the likelihood of the posterior probability or whatever, like it's just not, it's not of great interest to me. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. It, it is of great interest to a lot of people. So, but so yeah. many apologists seem to think that if they can refute Hume's argument against miracles, then that's yeah, like the so, strongest weapon in atheist yeah. arsenal, even though he wrote before <laughs> Bayesianism was really developed and understood. Like, you know, there are actually developments that have happened since then. <laughs> we don't have yeah. to just rely on Hume as good as he was. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, um, thank you so much, James, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Guys, make sure you go check out his book uh, and his YouTube channel and his podcast. It's really, really good stuff.